Lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds has come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. Throws across his body, and he got him! Looking away, McCann around third, throw from the outfield is up the line, inside the park home run! He gone! And he makes the catch up against the wall. And he's going to watch it fly. Strike three called. He got him on strikes. Welcome to The Voice of the Turtle, a podcast feature of the Bless You Boys website, SB Nation's Detroit Tigers blog. You can find us on the web at blessyouboys.com, also on Twitter at blessyouboys, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash byb.tigers. I'm your host, Hook Slide, along with my partner, Rob Rojacki, and our special guest, Rob Rojacki's beard. Rob, how is your, uh, how's your hot stove doing? Is it warmed up yet? Not as much as this beard is. It's, uh, <laughs> it's keeping the face nice and toasty. I can see that. I, I wish our, our listeners could see this, the gloriousness that is the Rojacki beard. It's, uh, it's on Twitter now. It is. I changed, I changed the picture today. All right. See, we're, we're moving right, right to the good stuff here. This is, we should have just had the whole podcast about the subject of your beard. We might have to this off season. Well, there's, there's time, right? We've got plenty of, plenty of off weeks coming up, so I'm sure we'll be talking about all kinds of weird, weird crap like that. Oh, my goodness. And, yeah, uh, so here we are, uh, having missed a week because I got attacked by a roving gang of viruses that beat me up and left me for dead, used my body as a human pinata and knocked me out for about 72 hours. You can probably still hear some of that. Yeah. And I feel like my sinuses have been just like packed with Thanksgiving mashed potatoes. So I apologize in advance for the uh, horrible audio quality and the coughing that is sure to follow throughout this podcast. Well, let's get this episode started. We're going to be talking about how to cope with the return of Brad Osmus. Bryce Harper and Chokegate, the unwritten rules of baseball, the future of the Tigers coaching staff. We'll take some listeners' questions, and we'll find out what in the actual hell is going on in the Tigers' front office. But before we do all that, let's round the bases. Six, six, righty delivers as a fly ball left field. This one's deep. This one's got a chance, and this ball is gone! A home run! Ian Kinsler delivers the walkoff! Number six for Ian. He rounds third. Heads into the mob scene at home. And the Tigers take the series from KC. A walk-off home run from Kinsler. Eight to six. All right, and we are into our rounding the bases segment. We're going to ask the question, what was the best and the worst part of 2015 season? Rob, it's, it's, it's over. It's finally, mercifully, it's over. What what do we say now? Now now that it's all said and done, what's the post mortem? What's the verdict on on the 2015 season? Well, there's only like 140 odd days till spring training. Are we counting? Uh, maybe. <laughs> I, I started counting a little bit the other day, um, and I may have even gone back and started to watch a little bit of baseball last night when there was nothing else on TV. Well, I mean, there was something on TV, but the Lions decided to fumble that and everything else away. Yeah, it's uh. Kind of looking a little bit like the Tigers there last night. I, I caught just that last glorious 10 minutes of that game and just enough to get my hopes up and then dash them 
That was that was awesome. So yeah, the Tigers are finally over and done with this 2015 season, the season that was not, and it is thankfully over, and we can start looking forward to all the good things that are coming, surely coming, in the 2016 off season. The silver lining, of course, with the way the Tigers finished up in last place with that final record of 74 and 87. Oh, it hurts to even say those numbers. The silver lining, of course, Rob, is that they got to um, they got to keep that uh, that top ten pick. They got the what number nine pick now in the uh, upcoming draft. That's correct. They're the number nine overall pick, uh, about a game and a half ahead of the White Sox, I think, and just behind the San Diego Padres for number eight overall. Uh, that's big for a couple reasons. First of all, obviously, having a pick that high, you can do a lot with it. Uh, there have been several great players drafted at number nine overall in review in. Uh, recent history. You have guys like Barry Zito, Michael Kadair, who have come along and had really productive careers. Uh, the Tigers took Jacob Turner, number nine overall in 2009. And while that's not a very impressive name yet, he's still only 24 years old. And the Tigers did use him to you know, get a couple guys in Anibal Sanchez and Omar Infante, who were very productive for a number of years for them. Yeah, I was looking back today just to see, uh, you know, out of curiosity, what, they haven't obviously had very high uh, draft picks in, in years past because they've been too good. But I looked back at their draft history just to look back and see when they did have a top 10 pick, what did they do with it? And I was kind of surprised that, uh, you know, just to see the Dave Dombrowski philosophy in action, that the last three picks, uh, Jacob Turner, Andrew Miller, and Cameron Mabin were the the last three uh, top 10 picks that they made, all turned into trade bait. Of course, the one immediately prior to that in 2004 was uh, Justin Verlander. That seems to be working out well, but outside of the Verlander pick, it seems like they, they've either struck out with guys like uh, Kyle Sleeth, who never quite made it out of the minor leagues as far as I know, uh, or just uh, taking people like Turner, Miller, Cabe, uh, uh, Mabin, rather, and then turning them into, into trade chips. Yeah, and you have to wonder kind of what, I mean, this is kind of playing a what-if game, but you have to wonder what would have happened if the Tigers would have kept guys like Miller and Turner in the system. Uh, the Tigers really rushed Miller to the big leagues in 2006 and 2007, and I think that a lot of people will agree that he could have used more time in the minor leagues to develop, sure. and that may have even kind of contributed to his career arc in that he, he failed as a starter, was never able to develop you know, the third pitch necessary to be a dominant starter, but now he's a dominant closer pitching in the postseason for the Yankees. Um, as for Turner, like he said, he's still pretty young. There are a lot of people kind of projecting him as a breakout candidate for the Cubs this season. Uh, but then he got hurt, and I don't remember if he had Tommy John or if it was just on the shelf for the entire year. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how he comes back over the next couple years. Yeah, so moving to 2016, I think, you know, like you said, it's going to be really interesting to see what they end up deciding to do with this. You know, it's this, uh, this new situation we finally have. You know, for the first time in, what, now six years, I guess it would be, since 2009, have a top 10 pick. Hopefully they uh, can find another Justin Verlander and uh, not another Kyle Sleeth. That would be a big, big help going forward because they're going to need some help, and we'll talk about the reasons why in just a minute. The upshot of this uh, horrible 2015 season, Miguel Cabrera did win that batting title, and I think we all kind of saw that coming. On the downside, Rob, J.D. Martinez... He didn't get to number uh, 40 on that home run list. He didn't even get to number 39 like you thought he would. No. Uh, That was a little frustrating to see him down the stretch. Um, It almost seemed like he was kind of pressing down, you know, in the last few weeks of the season. You almost wonder if he kind of saw number 40 in the 
on the horizon and was really trying to press for those last few homers to try to get to that total. Uh, you know, you can't really blame him. That's a pretty pretty big number uh, and, you know, a nice renowned round number that you would want to get to. Um, but, on you know, on the bright side, he did get over 100 RBIs. I think he finished the season at like 102, yeah, yeah. 103. Um, so that was that was nice to see him, you know. And, you know, you can't really, you know, be upset about a 38-homer, 100-RBI season. Um, those numbers just don't come along every day. No, I mean, not unless you're Prince Fielder or are supposed to be Prince Fielder and producing at that level. I mean, what is the last time the Tigers even had a 40 home run hitter that wasn't named Miguel Cabrera? Well, the last one to hit 40 homers, I think, was Cecil Fielder. Was it that back far in back? the early 90s? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we well, we went through kind of like the guys that had hit 40 homers in Tigers. Yeah, that's list. right. That's right. A very impressive list. You know, you've got guys like Cecil Fielder. I remember we touched on Daryl Evans, who yeah. was. You know, to did it in the late 80s, but then you got to go all the way back to, I think it was like 1961 when the last time. Yeah, Norm Cash. Um, And I believe someone else hit 40 for them that season. Um, But, you know, like you said, it's it's pretty rare feat for this franchise. And another thing that I was kind of thinking about with Martinez is that he may have just kind of ran out of gas Mm. going down the stretch. Uh, This is a guy, he played 123 games in the majors last season, and I believe only 10 or 12 more on top of that in the minor leagues. Uh, and this year he played in 158 games. He had 657 plate appearances, wow. and that's just a lot of playing time for a guy. And I think that, you know, had he not been chasing 40 homers, the Tigers may have given him a bit more rest down the stretch. Um, but, you know, it's it may just be one of those things that, you know, he's never played that much baseball before and could have just kind of ran out of steam. Now, I love the story arc, really, on J.D. Martinez, going from last year to kind of a surprise you know, and wow, there's a lot of pop in that bat, but come on, this has got to be a fluke, right? To in this year, watching him kind of repeat and, and do better than he did in 2014. And really, when you look at the, the whole of the season, he really kind of filled the role of the, the spot that I guess you would typically see Victor Martinez fill or Miguel Cabrera fill. Uh, he was in that spot just simply by virtue of being healthy, I think, for the whole season, but then also producing at the level he did. That looks really, really good going into next season, I think. It really does, and it's encouraging to see people like Brad Osma say that, you know, J.D. Martinez, not Miguel Cabrera, was our MVP this year. And it's really tough to argue with that logic. Uh, Martinez was great, not only offensively, but defensively as well. You know, he was a five-win outfielder, and those things don't exactly grow on trees. And the Tigers still have him locked up for two more years, uh, and possibly even more, if they get to get him to agree to a contract extension. And with Al Avila in the front office, the guy who J.D. Martinez credits as the reason he signed with the Tigers in the first place, mm-hmm. you have to think that the odds are fairly good if they you know, come to him with a respectable offer. And from the hitting, we go to the pitching and the controversy surrounding Daniel Norris, who threw 54 pitches in one inning on Tuesday. And people were just exploding all over the place, just furious that that Brad Osmus had left Daniel Norris to pitch 54 pitches in one single inning when he was supposed to be on a pitch limit. I know you kind of weighed in on this uh, with the post on the blog and kind of took maybe the middle road of saying, yeah, not a good idea but maybe not the worst idea. Have you changed your mind at all in the last couple of days? No, I really haven't. Um, You know, I really kind of tried to think through that situation when I wrote that post. Um, You know, obviously you don't want to see a guy throw 54 pitches. And, um, you know, it's such a rare occurrence that I feel like managers almost don't know what to do when the pitch count starts to get that high. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, baseball is kind of a game of failure. 
And so, you know, after 25, 30, 35 pitches, the offense is almost just going to screw up. So you don't necessarily get into that 40 or 50 pitch range very often. Mm. And the manager kind of has to weigh in, like, you know, what's the breaking point? Uh, that type of thing. I read a post on Fangraphs recently that kind of noted some of the downturn in uh, Norris's velocity towards the end of the towards the end of the inning, which is a little bit of a warning sign. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I think that they, you know, it, it wasn't a huge downturn. You know, he was still hitting like 91, 92 after hitting like 93, 94 earlier in the inning. You know, had he been in like the high 80s, that's you know definitely you got to get him out of there at that point. Um, and I think that I would have liked to have seen him face one fewer batter. I know that Rugnet Odor uh, had hit a triple right before um, the Tigers let him pitch to, I believe it was Chris Jimenez, um, to close out the inning, and that was like an eight-pitch at bat, which didn't help. Uh, but I was, I don't I don't want to say encouraged, but it was nice to hear that Osmus said, you know, after this, like, that was his last batter period, no matter what happened. Hmm. Um, you know, and, and so it's it's not ideal, but at the same time, I'm not, you know, spitting venom like a lot of the internet seemed to be. <laughs> That's just because it was Brad Osmus behind the decision, and we are not happy with Brad Osmus, no matter what he does. I don't know where I, I mean, sit on this whole issue, because I'm kind of with Patrick O'Kennedy. I don't really believe in pitch counts anyway. It's it's like you pointed out in the post. There's not really a magic number. There's not a one-size-fits-all number, for that matter. And uh, someone like Justin Verlander might be able to push that pitch count a lot higher than someone else might be able to. I know Daniel Norris is coming off of that injury. He's young yet. They're looking to him, you know, to fill a spot probably next year. You want to be careful with that. But, I mean, really, I, I get that the average number of pitches per inning sits somewhere, at least last year when I checked, it sat somewhere around between 80 and 22 is average, you know, for an inning. And to pitch 54, now you're talking about double the workload. And obviously 54 pitches is is different when it's spread out over two or three innings than it is if it's all in one you know, th- th- this is what you do when you exercise, right? You need time between repetitions to recuperate before you fatigue, like you pointed out, and the fatigue leads to injury. But I'm not sure that 54 is the magic the magic number. No, I mean, if anything, the, you know, uh, something less than that would be your magic number on when to get him out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like I said, I would have liked to see him, you know, get out of there one better sooner. Um, but at the same time, you know, there were a couple things working in his favor. He hadn't pitched in a week. And it only logged, you know, I think like 10 innings uh, prior to that start, you know, in the last month because of the oblique injury. You know, he, he was coming off an injury, but it wasn't an arm injury. So it's not necessarily something that is going to alter his mechanics too much uh, as long as he's, you know, fully healthy from that oblique. And, you know, being a young arm, yes, that's something you kind of want to protect. But at the same time, you know, from a medical standpoint, he's going to heal faster than a guy that's you know, 27, 32, you know, even going on Randy Wolf at 39, 40 years old. Now, as we were putting together the show notes for this episode and we were tossing back back and forth some ideas here, uh, I was a little surprised to see you'd slipped in a note that said, you know, want to talk about why it's okay that Neftali Feliz was the closer. Now I'm kind of intrigued because this is not something that you and I have really talked about even behind the scenes. Uh, the, the experience we've had with Neftali Feliz at least from the start of his appearance in Detroit earlier this year, it has not necessarily been an overwhelmingly positive one. And yet he was kind of being used in that closer role towards the end of the season, certainly because I think, you know, Brad Osmus seems to be kind of auditioning him for that role potentially for next year. Where do you see all that kind of shaking out? Is that, I mean, do you agree that's why Brad was using him in that spot? And why do you think that's okay? Well, yeah, I mean, we had kind of slipped that in there uh, more for last week's show when you were, 
dead or something like that. Yes. Um, but um, yeah, I think it was okay that he was used as the you know de facto closer down the stretch. Uh, the Tigers kind of wanted to see what they had in him. You know, he had closed in Texas before and done very, very well in that role. Uh, and you want to see, you know, as he gets further removed from the Tommy John surgery that had kind of set him back for a couple years, you know, will he be able to regain that form? And I think the clear answer is no. Uh, he was only three for five in save opportunities in September after Bruce Rondon was sent home. He had a 5.06 ERA in those six appearances and only a 4.71 ERA in August and September. So it's you know pretty clear that he's just not the same pitcher that he used to be. And I don't really think that the Tigers should... I, I, I would like to see the Tigers just completely cut bait with him. Uh, you know He's a non-tender candidate. He's going to make at least $4 million, I think, through that process if he goes through it next year and that's not exactly something you want to see you know for the guy that struggled this much uh, to get batters out going down the stretch so uh, i would like to see him in another uniform next year yeah and it's the long-term track record that kind of bothers me i know we kind of went through this about five or six podcasts ago when i was kind of breaking down the history of naftali feliz and where he came from and what he was doing and he was really good for texas but that was i want to say like 2010 is the last time he was good. And then he had the Tommy John surgery, and he never really got through another season after that without significant time on the disabled list or just very, very bad performances. I still don't think he's fully back you know, from that surgery, and I don't expect him to be back at this point because that's been, like I said, three, four years that he's had uh, to kind of recover from that. And just the numbers that you said he was putting up for Detroit this year, no, that bullpen is just a hot, gluey mess right now. I don't think they've got room to kind of take chances on guys like Neftali Feliz, or for that matter, Tom Gorzolani. Yeah, we also kind of slipped Tom Gorzolani's name in here into the show notes. Um, I remember that a lot of people had kind of noted his new arm angle, um, particularly kind of in the beginning part of September, when he had struggled a little bit, I think. Um, I believe Catherine wrote a post for us where she was talking about Gorzolani's arm angle, and it was coming like right after an outing where he had given up a couple runs or something like that, and we had you know kind of laughed it off at the point at the time, you know, saying like clearly it wasn't working. Um, but I went back and looked today, and he had 2.89 ERA in September. You know, he only threw about 10 innings, but he struck out 11 batters and only had two walks during that point. So you know, maybe there's something to this. You know, I know that 10 innings is a very small sample. But at the same time, he you know, kind of looked pretty good. The, the trouble with it is is that if you, if you even go back two more games prior to that, and then that becomes your arbitrary cutoff point, that ERA balloons to like eight uh, because he was having significant trouble when he came back. And, and I get that you know they sent him down to Toledo to work on the, the new arm slot. He went down to the three-quarter slot, maybe even full sidearm slot. And I checked the numbers just since he came back. When he came back with the brand-new you know, arm slot, uh, he he managed to throw 15 and a third innings, but the overall numbers, a 5.28 ERA, a 4.13 FIP. Opposing hitters were uh, had a 7.92 OPS against him. His WHIP was 1.37. Uh, he was giving up more than half a run per inning. They hit two home runs, three doubles, two triples. So he was getting smacked around pretty good from the point of return. So I I get that that. He seemed to be having more success in a string of outings there at the very, very tail end. Those last five, six, seven outings were good. Uh, but again, as with, with um, Neftali Feliz, I'm going to look at the track record you know, and say he wasn't really good all this year. It's been a couple of years since Gorzolani has been good at all. It's another one of those characters that I just say, I, I really hope they just kind of cut bait and don't take any chances because I'm sorry, the bullpen just does not have that kind of wiggle room right now. 
Yeah, uh, Gorzolani is definitely not a guy that I would want to rely on going forward. Um, he is the kind of guy who, you know, like like we saw last year when the Tigers signed him. I believe it was like you know getting into mid February, maybe even late February when they gave him a million dollar deal. Mm. Um, you know, it was kind of for lack of other options at that point that they didn't really have another left-hander to go with Blaine Hardy and Ian Kroll. Um, you know, you would like to see them pick up someone with a little bit more of a track record than Gorzolani has uh, it, earlier in the offseason. But then, you know, if he's still lingering there at the end of the offseason and, you know, you can kind of, if anything, you give him kind of a non-roster invite to spring training and see what happens. But I think that someone will give him a guaranteed contract. Um, you know, getting him as kind of this flyer, if you will, uh, I think could pay off if he really does have, you know, this new arm slot uh, intact. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not feeling it though. I, we 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 throw those words around a lot. I feel like in the last couple of years, you know, give give the guy a flyer, and it just seems like none of those projects or reclamation projects have really worked out for the Tigers long term. You know, Jabba Chamberlain, Phil Coke, uh, there was the guy last year, Jim Johnson, and then there was, uh, oh come on, Hanrahan uh, was another one that they you know picked up for a million bucks and he never even threw a pitch. I'm just I'm hoping for a completely new approach in in 2016. I hope they they give us a whole new bullpen. Bring out the broom and just dust that whole thing. <laughs> Start from scratch and give us a bullpen that works. All right, I think that'll do for rounding the bases. We're going to try and whip through these segments tonight because there's a wild card game going on, and I know you want to see it and I want to see it. So, but what's what's the uh, what's the update? It is one nothing Houston in the top of the third with a runner on second. Uh, this is going to be one of those that comes down to the wire, I think. So, yeah, we need to get through this podcast so we can watch this game. All right, when we come back for the next segment, Warming in the Pen, we're going to talk about why you should avoid watching Tigers baseball in 2016 when we get back from the break. Here's the 2-2. It's in the fly ball, right field. Deep and down the line, and gone! Victor Martinez with a two-run shot. Tigers back on top here in the seventh. And we're back with our warming in the pen segment. I'm going to tell you why you should avoid watching Tigers baseball in 2016. All right, maybe that's a little bit overdramatic, just a little bit, but it's it's been a week and a half now since the news was announced officially by the Tigers front office, by the general manager, Al Avila. Uh, Brad Osmus is coming back to manage the team in 2016. And as of now, uh, I believe the... the, the uh, his entire coaching staff is coming back with him. And I, I really appreciate all of the condolences, uh, the sympathy cards that listeners sent me, the extra bottles of alcohol. People were seriously asking. Here's the story, Rob. I was out having a wonderful date with my daughter on Saturday, the 23rd. We went to go see a musical together. And like a good theater patron, I shut my phone off. Two and a half hours later, I come out of the theater. My phone is blowing up because people are contacting me on Twitter and going, are you okay? Are you okay with the news? The Osmus is coming back. Are you, are you alive? Are you completely drunk? Really appreciate that, guys. Um, no, my, my actual reaction when, when the news came out was... Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Why? 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 He was gone, Rob. He was gone. He was gone. It was a done deal. It had been reported by multiple media outlets and sources, you know, supposedly close to Illich saying it's over. I mean, he was gone. I mean, this is 
th th this is the situation where your buddy is dating the girl that nobody likes and you just really hope they break up and they finally do and they're like broke up for like two weeks and you're like yes and then he comes back he's like no actually we're getting married and you're like what no we were just getting used to the idea of life being okay again I was looking forward to 2016 you're telling me the guy's coming back <laughs> And I, uh, yeah, I, I'm rapidly cycling through all five stages of grief and loss. You know, the Kubler-Ross model, I'm going from anger to depression, you know, like, oh, I'm just not going to watch the team next year, to the, the bargaining phases of like, well, maybe, maybe Avila can, like, awesomest proof the roster, it'll be okay, to just, you know, acceptance of like, yeah, it's, I, it's not my decision, I can't change it but funny thing to me rob is that i know we've kind of chatted a little bit and you put that post up that basically said hey it's it's not going to make or break the team you know in 2016 brad osmus isn't going to it's probably not the right move but you know not that big of a deal i know it's really kind of a less impactful thing to you than it is to me so i guess we'll start with the question of um you know what what is it like to be so wrong about something i I don't know. You know, it really was kind of a head-scratcher to that he was brought back, especially after all the reports that you mentioned. Uh, I remember watching it unfold on Twitter, and I think Lynn Henning tweeted something, you know, fairly cryptic, like, Brad Osmus is back. And, you know, I think, like, the first ten replies on it were, like, from the bathroom? Or <laughs> where was he going? Um, that type of thing. And then, you know, five minutes later, all the beat writers chime in with saying, you know, Brad Osmus will be back in 2016, Al is making this big announcement now, um, you know, and it was kind of a, it was definitely a surprise, um, but I was slightly encouraged to see, or to kind of hear Avila go through his whole reasoning uh, behind it. Um, you know, I liked that he kind of took a pragmatic approach to everything, and it seemed like he really was kind of honestly evaluating Osmus throughout this, you know, two-month tenure that we've been kind of waiting through. You know, we thought he was just kind of paying Osmus lip service when, during his introductory press conference where he said, oh, yeah, we're going to evaluate him and make all these decisions at the end of the season. And it turns out, you know, maybe he was actually kind of doing his homework behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. you, you're going to have to sell me harder than that. Because as I recall, I read, I read through uh, the, the Alavila press conference, um, Neil Weinberg uh, posted something on his site, uh, the New English D, and I want to see if I can pull that up uh, while we're while we're doing this because he had a, he had a quote from from Al Avila in there. I thought was really really telling. Um, I can't find it here, but I can maybe paraphrase. Avila said something to the effect of basically, "We asked ourselves the question: Could it get any better? <laughs> could it be better than it is?" And we decided, no, it could not be any better. And I thought, what <laughs> kind of a what kind of a ringing endorsement is that? Here it is. Yeah, Avila said, uh, this is Anthony Fennec tweeted this out. Avila said about evaluating the managerial position, how can it be better? And my conclusion was, it's not going to be better. If the, Help, Rob. What, what does that mean? Well, if you're you know trying to decide between Ron Gardenhire and Brad Osmus, maybe it really isn't going to be better. Um, you know, there weren't very many good options on the on the open market this offseason you know there was no joe madden there's no bruce Bochy or buck showalter or anything like that um and if the rumors were true that the tigers were only looking at ron gardenhire as their next manager you know maybe al avila thinks you know the devil we know is better than the devil we don't know type of thing um so it's it's tough to say you know i'm not 
overly enthused about the news, but I think I'm less angry about it than a lot of other people. And I don't know if that puts me in like the pro wasmus camp, but I'm really kind of ambivalent towards it. Yeah, I, I'm anything but ambivalent. And I know, I know, I know you can't say specifically with a hundred percent certitude that, you know, Brad Osmus certainly caught cost the team 10 games this year or nine or seven or whatever the number is. You can't say that. I get that. It's, it's foolish to pretend that you have that kind of certainty because even if you can point to 10 specific instances this year where he made stupid strategical decisions, you still don't know how that game unfolds after he makes a different set of decisions. But the, I think you can say with you know the, the numbers there in black and white, you can absolutely say he regularly, consistently, like clockwork, puts this team in a situation where their win expectancy is less than it could be if he had made better decisions. I mean, we could say that just with the, with the bullpen usage alone and the, the fact that he uses it you know, in reverse order of what he should in terms of the uh, leverage index matched up against the win probability added. He uses the relievers in the wrong order. He constantly puts this team in a situation where they're, they're at a less, uh, you know, a lower percentage of win expectancy than they should be or than they could be. And uh, that's where I think Neil Weinberg made a very great point in saying, you know, yeah, if you have a 100-win team, even Osmus can't screw that up, but most teams don't. Most teams, like the Tigers, I think, next year are going to be on that bubble uh, maybe like the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim this year, where one or two is one or two losses, either direction can be the difference between, you know, sitting at home in October or being on the field like the Houston Astros are right now. I, I just don't want to see it, Rob. I don't want to see 2016 be the year where it becomes perfectly crystal clear that one or two wins or losses made the difference. And you can point to the 10, 15 games where Osmus made stupid decisions and say, yep, probably probably actually cost us a, a, a shot at the playoffs this year. Because I'm not saying that about 2015. Don't, don't get me wrong. 2015 was a wash. You pick your favorite manager, Terry Francona, uh, Joe Madden, put whoever in that spot in 2015. They're still in last place. But I don't know, 2016, I think it's going to be different. I think it's going to come down to those three or four wins. It definitely could. Um, you know, like you said, 2015, you know, that was not Brad Osmus's fault. There was just too many things going on there. Um, but at the same time, everything I've seen about this whole situation is that everyone keeps focusing on the on-field things, you know, and Brad Osmus is not a very good in-game tactician. I'm not going to, you know, blow smoke up anyone's ass and say that, you know, oh, he wasn't that bad. No, he's not very good in in-game strategy. Um, but at the same time, you know, a lot of managers aren't. And I don't know that anyone that the Tigers would have looked at is substantially better than Osmus in that regard. And I keep going back to a lot of the player comments that were made after Osmus was retained. And even kind of before then, you know, a lot of the guys showed a lot of support for Osmus. Um, and while, you know, he was, you know, before the announcement, I think some of that may just be a little bit of lip service. But afterwards, you really kind of get to see, you know, what exactly this team thinks about him. And I wonder if, you know, Alavila took some of that into account when he was trying to make this decision. Uh, you can you know you got guys like Justin Verlander backing his manager even after the whole booing situation when he was taken out of the mm. taken out of a game in the ninth inning. Right. Um, you see comments from guys like James McCann who you know says he's learned a ton from Osmus. Um, you know a guy like Alex Wilson who Osmus mismanaged in games, but at the same time, a lot of guys have said that they really like the way Osmus runs the clubhouse. They like that he doesn't get easily rattled or anything like that. You know, we almost kind of took the opposite route earlier this year, saying, you know, maybe he doesn't have enough fire when you need a little bit of that. Right. Um, but it seems like the players really kind of respect his, you know, his kind of more low-key personality. And I think that that really says something. You know, it, this isn't like 
a high school or a college sport where you can get by with a coach that people don't really like. Um, you know, this is a professional game where, you know, we're, they're with that manager six months out of the year, and they need a guy that they really kind of respect and will play for. And it seems like Osmus is that guy. Yeah, it, and it's hard to say, honestly, because I know those are some of the arguments I've been seeing, you know, around around the Internet and so forth. But it, to me, it kind of reminds me of, you know, trying to argue for a player's valuability or, or value by saying, you know, there's intangibles that we don't see. The numbers may not be good, but, you know, he's a good clubhouse guy or he's, you know, whatever. He, he claps a lot, Quentin Berry, you know, this kind of thing. And I know it's different for a manager because you, you just don't have stats. You don't have good stats on a manager to really say he adds or takes away specific games here and there or whatever you just, you have a win loss percentage and that's mostly on the players um it's just hard for me to kind of evaluate and say i'm sure there are intangibles but if we don't have good stats around the actual on-field strategy stuff we certainly don't have any stats around the intangible so it's, it's hard for me to evaluate at that point and say how, how valuable is that then to the team but i mean I know you come down to it um this this garden hire thing is is the issue i, th- I think because i i do believe all those rumors, the sources that were talking about, you know, uh, people close to the Illich family saying Garden Hire was basically all but hired. They'd already reached out to him. He'd already expressed interest. They were ready to sign the deal. They were just waiting for the season to wind up. I, I think there's some truth in what you're saying, that if it comes down to Osmus versus anybody else, at the big question mark, then give me the question mark. If it comes down to Osmus versus Garden Hire specifically, uh, okay, maybe... Maybe Osmus is okay with, you know, I, but I don't understand, Rob, what happened because we had this, this little tidbit come out from Darren Wolfson uh, out at KSTP in Minnesota who had a source close to Garden Hire who basically said, yeah, Garden Hire thought he had the job. So, I mean, to me, it says there was more to these rumors than just air. It seemed to be some substance there. Something seems to have happened behind the scenes that both parties were were apparently somewhat on board and then uh, then not. Do you think that points to maybe a little bit more power in the hands of uh, Avila? That does, um, and I that's kind of one of the things that I had said on the site is that you know with Al Avila being able to make this announcement that Osmus is back instead of kind of the. Uh, the news, uh, and I think I think this is more than just smoke. Now, you know, at first we thought, you know, maybe uh, this is just kind of a rumor, but you see, you know, a guy in Minnesota reporting the same thing that you know multiple outlets in Detroit did, and I don't think there was really any sort of co- corroboration there. Um, you know, it, to have this kind of 180 happen, it's surprising, but I think a little surprising in a good way. Um, you know, maybe you're not the biggest fan of Osmus, but I think that everyone, I think everyone can agree that, you know, Al Avila making the decisions for this team is far, far better than Mike Illich making the decisions for this team. Um, you know, you've seen Mike Illich make kind of outlandish decisions in the past, signing Prince Fielder, signing Victor Martinez. Some of them have worked out, but overall, you know, if you get an owner that's meddling too much, and I think you can look, you know, to uh, among other places to Miami for that, where Jeffrey Luria is doing whatever in God's name with that franchise. Um, you know, having your general manager be the one in charge and making baseball decisions is a far better alternative. No, you, you definitely do not want Mike Illich being the one to make the decisions. You mentioned uh, the Prince Fielder contract and the the Victor Martinez contract. And I, like I said, the guy's getting old. I don't know, you know how much of that enters into it. Uh, I, I think he's getting desperate. I'm pretty sure that he straps pizzas to his naked body at night and dances to the Macarena. I'm not sure I want that guy making any kind of, you know, long-term decisions for the team. 
but you know, if he wants to open up his pocketbook, uh, you know, for 2016 because he's that desperate, then you know, by all means, let's let's go to it. But that goes to that question of next year and building up the roster. How much is Avila going to need to osmus proof the roster so that he becomes, you know, kind of the Ned Yost that you know. With a, with a not-so-good team, everything that Ned Yost does wrong comes right to the surface, and when he has a really good team, suddenly even the Kansas City fans are like, oh, no, he's great, he's fine. What, what does Avila have to do to the Tigers roster so that you know Brad's horrible strategical decisions don't have the impact? I think a general, a general manager's job is to manager-proof their roster. You know, as a GM, you want to acquire enough players, enough depth that your manager really can't screw it up. Um, you know, and I, I don't necessarily mean that to, you know, bash every single manager in the big leagues, although it's, sometimes it does seem that way. Um, I think that, you know, that that's kind of their goal is to build the strongest roster possible going into the season. Uh, you know, as far as, quote-unquote, osmus-proofing it, I think that they really just need to address the bullpen then that's really kind of the biggest thing. You know, if you get seven guys back there who are capable of, you know, pitching well, um, you know, this year they had, what, one, maybe two at times, you know, three during their best days. Um, you know, part of that, you know, sure, Brad Osmus did pick the wrong guys in a lot of situations, but at the same time, he just didn't have a lot to work with. And I'm not necessarily trying to defend Osmus with that. It's just that I think that, you know, if Avila and the new kind of new front office are able to build a, a better, more well-rounded bullpen instead of, you know, acquiring one big closer for 10 million bucks mm. and hoping that works. Uh, I think that that is going to go a long way, a long way into quote unquote, auspice proofing the roster. A thousand percent agree. I will be very disappointed if they go out and spend big money on, you know, a, a top flight quote unquote proven closer, because as we've seen, Brad Osmus doesn't know how to manage outside of the bullpen roles. You can put a guy like Joe Nathan in there who's an established top-flight closer, and even if he's imploding every other outing, the, a guy like Brad Osmus is going to continue using him in the ninth inning, period, because, well, he's the closer. Jabba Chamberlain can be imploding every other game, and he's going to be out there in the eighth inning because he's my eighth inning guy. Yeah, that we absolutely... This is why I'm so kind of dead set against bringing back guys like Neftali Feliz or Tom Gorzolani, that there's any kind of question mark around them. Forget it, man. Give me a bullpen that no matter who Osmus goes to, let them be at least average, <laughs> you know, uh -huh. if not well above average, because he will screw this up. He will put the, the, the least uh, successful arms in the highest leverage situations, as he has done for two years running now. I think it's an established pattern and fact. He will keep doing this. He's not going to change his crazy ways. We've seen that in the interviews. He's, he is the living uh, example of... Mark Twain's statement, you know, better to keep your mouth closed and be thought a fool than to open it and remove all doubt. That's Osmus, the guy who will bring in Neftali Feliz with a two-run lead in the eighth and not use Alex Wilson. You think, what are you, an idiot? And then they ask him in the press conference, you know, why did you do that? Well, because I needed to save Alex Wilson for extra innings. Yep, you're an idiot. You just proved it. Great. That's fantastic. And next time? Oh, I would not change a thing next time. Ah, oh, fantastic. Great. He's not going to learn from his mistakes. They've, they've got to do something about that bullpen especially, or things are going to get nasty in 2016. Anyway, we got to get off this subject, or I'm going to burst something. And uh, I'm going to really do my best to come into 2016 with something of a positive attitude, because I do not want to watch Osmus do this same thing for 162 games. I can't do it, man. I can't. You're going to be optimistic when March rolls around. I, you know, maybe not about him, but about the team. Yep, a good off season can 
put all of that way, way back on the back burner. So I'm putting all of my hope and trust in Alavila right now to do the thing and be the godfather and just make other teams an offer they can't refuse. All right. Uh, the MLB playoffs are happening right now. They are set. It's the Astros and the Yankees playing right now. And the Pirates and the Cubs uh, clashing tomorrow night. Those are the wild card teams. Uh, the rest of the teams obviously are set. We have the division champions. Uh, who do you got, Rob? Who, who's your picks? Well, we both said a couple weeks ago that we thought, you know, the Blue Jays and Cardinals would face off in the World Series. Mm-hmm. And I'm definitely sticking with those picks. Um, I think the Blue Jays are just far and away the best team in the American League and probably the best team in baseball right now. And the Cardinals, you know, I think that's really more just come down to Cardinals devil magic or whatever you want to call it. They just don't freaking lose in the postseason. The Giants aren't there to knock them out this year. Um, you know, and they didn't win 100 games this year for nothing. So, you know, that's a definitely a great team. And I think that everyone else in the National League has, you know, has enough holes that the Cardinals will be able to exploit to get to the World Series. But then they're just running into, you know, just a monster in the Blue Jays. Yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, I've got... Uh... I've got the Astros and Cubs emerging victorious from the wild cards and then the, the Royals and Blue Jays taking their respective division titles. Uh, the, the thing is, the only one that I've got a question mark over is I, I picked the Cardinals to be the National League representative in the World Series and face off against the Blue Jays. Uh, yeah, the Cardinals had the best record in all of baseball. They got to 100 wins this year. Um, and yet the Dodgers have that Granke-Kershaw combination. And as far as fan graphs is concerned, uh, the Dodgers have the highest probability of winning the World Series, I think, even over the, the Blue Jays, if I'm not mistaken. Certainly in the National League, the Dodgers are the favorite. So I might be slightly off there. I don't know if the Cardinals can overcome that, that Greinke-Kershaw combination, but I liked what you said, I think, in the post. Was I think it was you that said today, you, you, you kind of feel like they can steal a game, the Cardinals can, from that uh, Kershaw-Greinke combination. Yeah, I think they could. Uh, the Cardinals have an excellent pitching staff of their own, and I think that you know they may not have the starter to, that can go toe to toe with a Grinky or a Kershaw, mm-hmm. but you know some fluky things will happen in the playoffs sometimes. And if they can get through six, seven in- innings with their starter and then turn it over to that excellent bullpen that they have, I think that they could you know outlast you know the the Dodgers in just one of those games um, because you know the Dodgers rotation really kind of falls off to a cliff after those two and in the seven game series you kind of need four starters so it will be it will be interesting to see what happens if the if the Dodgers can even get past the Mets you know the Mets have some great pitching of their own um, I think that that series is going is to come down to home field advantage hmm. you know and having to go out west and face Grinky and Kershaw in Los Angeles first I think is going to be a little bit too much for the Mets to handle but it definitely could swing either way I think that one's going to be you know a, a close series you know probably four or five games that's going to be a major uh, pitch off, I think, when you look at uh, Granky Kershaw. But then on the Mets side, there's uh, oh come on now, Degrom and Syndergaard and Matt uh, Harvey. And is he is he going to pitch in the postseason? They said he's starting Game Three. No kidding. Mm-hmm. Okay, wow, wow. I wasn't sure where that whole deal with his uh, innings limit and all that kind of thing ended up shaking out. I kind of dropped off there. Well, I think it is kind of playing a role for him because you know if he were. You know, just kind of a full go. I think he'd be starting game one or game two hmm. in Los Angeles, and they'd probably turn it over to Noah Syndergaard in game three. You know, Syndergaard has had, I think Syndergaard has the highest differential between home and road ERAs between, uh, you know, all of their starters this year. And I think that they would much rather have him pitch in New York, but, you know, with Har- Harvey's innings concerns, I think that they have to, they have to kind of 
scale him back a bit and put Syndergaard into the fire and facing, I think he'll face Kershaw in game two. Okay. Well, I, I, I picked my picks based on who I actually thought was going to be there, you know, in those respective slots, not necessarily who I wanted to be there. I would like to see the Dodgers represent in the World Series. I'd like to see Dodgers Blue Jays, a whole lot of blue out there. I just, I like you said, I think I believe too much in the uh, devil magic, the Cardinals devil magic. I think we're going to see birds in the World Series. Okay, so that should just about do it for our warming in the pen segment. When we come back from the break, we'll go into high and tight. And when exactly did baseball players become above the law? When we get back from the break. Three, two, fly ball, center field. This one's deep, going back, Borges at the warning track, looking up, and it's gone! A home run! Amazing. How about it? First chance to hit 400, and Miguel Cabrera delivers in his first at-bat of the day. And welcome back from the break. We're into our high and tight segment. And when did the baseball when did baseball players become above the law? We're of course referring to this incident that happened about a week ago. I think it was on Sunday. I want to say last Sunday, September the twenty seventh. The game with the uh, Washington Nationals and uh, Jonathan Papelbon, their esteemed top flight closer that they just picked up this year after the trade deadline, played his hands on Bryce Harper because apparently he was not happy with uh, Bryce Harper not hustling hard enough on a, on a routine fly ball to left field. Harper got back to the dugout. The two were barking back and forth at each other. Harper basically said, you want to go, bro? And Papelbon choked him, put the stranglehold right on him. Man, there's a lot to talk about here. There's just so much good stuff. Uh, the What was surprising to me, I think, and maybe to you too, Rob, is, is the immediate... Um, what would you call the immediate division of lines? I would have thought that everybody would have reacted badly to this and said, you can't do that. You can't strangle a fellow player, let alone the freaking, you know, probably National League MVP. And yet there was a very, very strong contingent on the baseball side of things, ex-players, maybe some current players, whatever, saying, oh, no, 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 no. Harper was in the wrong. Papelbon had every right to call him out. Uh, I remember the very next day, in fact, driving into work, and uh, CBS Sports Radio has that little clip in the morning where Boomer Esiason comes on and does a little sports minute or whatever, and, and he was, yeah, he was right, immediately right on the, Bryce Harper can't be can't be lollygagging, and even if you are an MVP, you're not above, you know, this sort of whatever, blah, 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 blah. Uh, what do you think? Where do you, where do you divide the fault lines there? Does Harper deserve any of the blame, really? No, there's no way he deserves any of the blame. Uh, there's no reason why a guy should, you know, why anyone deserves to be choked like that, especially in a workplace environment. You know, I know that that's a very different workplace than you or I have to deal with, but it's still, you know, where he's working. Um, you know, any other job and, you know, Pebblebine would have been charged with assault or something, <laughs> right. you know, of that nature. Um, you know, it, it was surprising to see some of these people you know, come to Papawan's defense. Uh, you know, you mentioned Boomer Esiason, another guy, C.J. Nikowski, a former Tigers pitcher, um, and really a pretty good analyst from, you know, previous, you know, instances that I've seen, things that I've read, uh, and w- listening to him on TV. You know, he's usually pretty pretty good, pretty smart guy, um, but seeing him come out and defend Papawan was just ridiculous. Um, you know, one guy that I really kind of liked his take was Mark DeRosa on MLB Network, and he was, you know, kind of really bashing Papelbon for this whole thing about calling out Bryce Harper for hustle, you know, saying, you know, this is a guy that pitches 60 innings a year. He doesn't even get to the ballpark by the time the game starts half the time. Right. Um, you know, just kind of how those top flight closers usually operate. You know, they're not, usually, they're not always there. 
right. even at the beginning of the game, um, and to bash a guy who's going to be the NL MVP and, you know, is in game 157 or whatever it is of the season. Um, and Harper got to first base. Like, that was the thing. He, you know, he swung, he popped the ball up. It seemed like he was disappointed that he didn't hit it as well as he did um, or as well as he wanted to. And then he kind of, you know, dropped his bat and jogged over the first base and still got to first base by the time the ball was dropped. So it wasn't like he just stopped and walked off the field. Um, you know, apparently Papelbon just kind of wanted to see a little bit more hustle out of him than what he got. Um, and I think a lot of this dates back to an incident earlier in the week exactly. when the Tigers, I mean, sorry, the Nationals were playing the Baltimore Orioles. Mm -hmm. uh, what happened was Max Scherzer allowed a home run to Manny Machado. Um, I didn't watch the clip, so I don't know if Machado, you know, stared at it or anything like that. Um, but then in Machado's next plate appearance, Papelbon was pitching and, you know, threw a pitch inside and missed him. Um, and then a couple pitches later, came inside again and hit Machado. Uh, and there, you know, I think Papelbon was ejected and the benches emptied and all that. Um, and, and you know, this kind of became a big thing. You know, Machado called out Papelbon in the media after the game. Um, but they also had Bryce Harper comment on it. And Harper said, "A quote: I mean, Manny hit a freaking homer, walked it off, and somebody drilled him. I mean, it's pretty tired. It's just one of those situations where it happens. And I don't know. I'll probably get drilled tomorrow." Uh, and I think that Papelbon definitely took offense to that, you know, for Harper not necessarily coming to defend his teammate. But you can also see why Harper was upset. You know, sure. he's probably going to get hit with a 95-mile-an-hour fastball exactly. in the ribcage the next day. That doesn't sound like fun to me. Um, so, you know, uh, it, it's just kind of a ridiculous situation. And so he's accepting of the rules. You can kind of hear that in the tone of what he's saying. And it's just it's kind of tired, this whole thing. And whatever, I'm probably going to get hit. Papelbon doesn't like that, so Papelbon decides to take that opportunity to kind of, you know, find something to nitpick, i.e. you're not hustling it out on a pop fly. I, You know, there was such a dust-up over this. You talked about Nikowski, you talked about, uh, we talk about Boomer Esiason taking Papelbon's side, and nobody's really getting any further in the discussion because, on the one hand, I get what these guys are saying. They're talking strictly about the issue of Harper's lack of hustle on that play and whether or not you know, somebody on the team has a right to kind of bark at him for that. I don't think there's any question of the, the strangling coming into that. I don't think anyone's defending that. But as soon as anybody says, hey, Harper deserves to be, you know, called out on that, then the, the response is, choking is wrong. Yes, yeah, I get that. But that's not what really the discussion is or is not about. It's, you know, did, did he deserve to be called out on the hustle? And even there, even on that issue, I think, no. I mean, the guy, like you said, he's been hustling for 160-some games this year and so so well you know that he's going to win the mvp award in, in all likelihood if you've got to call a guy out and this harkens back rob to what happened between jose iglesias and james mccann uh with the tigers earlier this year when you recall mccann called out iglesias presumably about lack of hustle in the field and the two got into kind of a shoving match and actually that was kind of a those those fights are fun to compare i think uh Papelbon choked Harper. That didn't happen between those two Tigers, but yet their fight actually lasted a little bit longer and involved a lot more players. You had Castellanos coming in and, you know, headlocking Iglesias. You had Ghost coming over and grabbing Iglesias by the scruff of the collar, you know, and barking at him in his ear. That just went on for a while. Um, but the issue in both situations, I think, is if you're going to call somebody out, you do it in private. You don't do it right out in the clubhouse with the TV cameras on you. No, definitely not. Um, you know, I think that there are a couple other bigger differences uh, in this situation. Um, not only 
you know, with the whole choking aspect of it. Um, I think it says something that, you know, with McCann and Iglesias, these are a couple young players who, you know, haven't really been through this before, whereas with, you know, Harper is the youngest guy that we're mentioning. You know, he's still only, what, 22, 23 years old, Mm -hmm. Uh, but he's been in the league for, you know, three or four years now. Uh, And then you've got a guy in Jonathan Papelbon who's been around for a decade. Those are a couple of veteran veteran players who really kind of know better uh, and know when the appropriate time is to do that. And I know a lot of people have kind of studied Papelbon's body language during this whole situation it seemed like he kind of wanted it to do it mm-hmm. right then um but you know with with McCann and Iglesias I think it also says something that we haven't heard a peep about anything else going on you know with any of these guys ever since then and I think that that kind of speaks to the veteran leadership in the Tigers clubhouse you know those guys probably got to both McCann and Iglesias afterwards and said you know what this isn't how you do it, you know, if you have an issue with some of this, you talk about it behind closed doors, away from the media, uh, and we handle it there. And then the Nationals have had so many clubhouse issues. Um, you know, the Washington media here in D.C. is really just kind of just taking Matt Williams to town for everything that's gone on uh, throughout the year. There have been, you know, there's been like a series, an actual like series of articles in the Washington Post about how Matt Williams has kind of lost this clubhouse. Um, and I, one of the quotes that really kind of came up to me was, you know, an unnamed source said that at one point Jason Worth was yelling, yelling at Matt Williams saying, when exactly do you think you lost this team? Um, and wow. just a lot of other different things in that, you know, they were really kind of commenting on, you know, Matt Williams's lack of leadership and his lack of communication with the team. And I think that that was really kind of a stark contrast with everything we've heard about the Tigers and how Brad Osmus is dealing with his club. You know, he may not be, you know, as they're both struggling on the field. And, you know, the, the Tigers have had some rough, you know, rough decisions as far as bullpen management and in-game things like that. But this is just, you know, kind of the, the comparison between the clubhouses and how these two managers are handling their teams are really kind of night and day. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot more toxicity around Matt Williams and what he's doing. And it's just kind of funny to me because we were just talking about this a few weeks back when we were considering whether or not Manny Acta might be the guy to get the Tigers management spot uh, after Brad Osmus was supposed to be fired, which didn't happen. And that was one of the things that we talked about because it was the Washington Nationals that Acta was managing and that got fired from. And for almost for some of the same reasons in terms of the players saying, yeah, you know, he lost us. He wasn't uh, engaged enough. We never hardly heard from the guy. We, you know, you would hear two team talks a year at the beginning and end of the season and never anything in between. So I don't know if that, that's just a, a characteristic of the, of the Nationals team as they are right now or, or then. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it definitely sounds like Matt Williams, uh, he's been fired now, right? Yes, he has. Okay. He was fired first thing Monday morning. Wow. So that's over and done. And it sounds like it was a much more toxic situation than what uh, we're, we're seeing with, with Brad Osmus. Uh, even if there are, like you said, some, some similarities, especially, you know, just I, I saw a lot of similarities in the way that the various media outlets were going after their management decisions, especially with regards to the bullpen. And then just with the outcry in both cities of, in terms of saying these guys need to be fired. They need to be let go. And it sounded like they were both headed that direction. Oddly enough, Williams gets fired and Osmus stays. So who knows? Oh, these unwritten rules of baseball. Isn't it just funny, though? I mean, we, we alluded to this earlier. Any other scenario, any other environment that you're in, a guy lashes out at another guy and grabs hold of his throat, you're, you're going to jail. You're going to jail for the night. 
for assault. And yet somehow in baseball, that is just seen as, hey, that's what we do here. You know, we, we're gamers, man. We're competitive. Harper's a gamer. Papelbon's really competitive. That's how these things just kind of, you know, work themselves out. How is it that these, that these guys are above the law? You know, it's tough to say. Um, you know, another thing that you could maybe compare it to is, uh, you know, I, I definitely don't know firsthand how this goes, but I want to say that, you know, maybe the military is the same way. Hmm. You have a lot of young guys, uh, young men in, you know, close quarters, and there's going to be disagreements between people. Um, you know, not everyone is always going to get along. Um, and you hear about, you know, sometimes these guys probably get into fist fights and things like that. Um, and I, I, like I said, I don't know as far as what the discipline is like with that. Um, but at the same time, with with baseball players, you know, these guys are getting paid millions of dollars to act a certain way and behave a certain way. And it's just ridiculous that they, you know, can't follow it, whether it's, you know, with their on-field actions, with some of the stuff we are talking about between Harper and Papelbon or some of the off-field stuff that we see guys get, you know, busted for in all professional sports. Um, you know, it's it's disappointing that a lot of these guys, you know, are do kind of see themselves as above the law and frequently get away with, you know, things that, that they do. Um, but at the same time, I guess that's just kind of what comes with the territory when you're one of the very best people in the world yeah. at whatever it is that you do. And they're living in a bubble, you know, their jobs are not like anybody else's jobs. And I remember seeing somebody tweeted, I can't remember who it was, that basically said, you know, it's up to us, the fans and the media to kind of set that standard, though, to keep calling them out on those things and saying, no, it's not okay. You're not in a protective little bubble in a club. You're part of society. You can't get away with that kind of stuff. It would be fascinating to me to see what would happen if a certain... um, like actual civil laws were enacted, you know, that said even in a baseball field, if you strangle a guy in the clubhouse, you're going to jail. And, you know, what would that really change in the game? You know, if you throw at a batter deliberately trying to hit him, not only do you get suspended, you you might actually spend some time in handcuffs. Like, it would change some aspects of the game, but it really wouldn't change the core of the game, do you think? No, not at all. Um, You know, throwing at a batter can be... Difficult sometimes, you know, I think that a lot of times it's easy to judge intent, but, you know, there may, there is a little bit of gray area with that. But I think that it would definitely change the game for the better if you could enact some sort of thing like that. Um, or even just kind of have the, you know, have the media, have the fans, you know, t- ha- you know take more accountability into their own hands. Uh, I know that, you know, I don't want to get too far into this, but, you know, a situation like in the NFL last year, where Ray Rice went through his whole domestic dispute and there was the suspension and all that, um, you know, he, I don't believe he is currently playing for an NFL team, uh, you know, and that may or may not be due to his skill level, but I think that, you know, the the whole media circus and everything surrounding that entire situation definitely plays a role in why he's not playing for an NFL team right now. Absolutely, I think it does. And not, like I said, to get too far into it, but it does relate to a topic we're going to talk about pretty soon. Uh, just that, you know, if you have that much of a PR disaster on your hands, um, then that is going to maybe affect your bottom line. Uh, if you have a Ray Rice type on your team and enough fans in your city are saying, absolutely not, what he did was not acceptable, we don't support that, we're not even coming to the games, you know, then then you've got a problem. And I think teams do care, corporations, you know, that run these teams do care about that sort of thing. Um, but that is a different topic for the next segment because we are going to get into this just a little bit. Papelbon did get suspended for his actions. Uh, he got suspended for the rest of the year, I think, for what he did, uh, not only throwing at Manny Machado and then in the combination of that and, and choking Bryce Harper. Uh, so he, he paid a little bit for that, and I have a, I have a feeling he's not going to be back 
next year. Um, but more no. on that as we uh, get into our next segment. That'll wrap up this one. When we come back from the break, we will go into the mob scene at home and talk about the guy the Tigers need in 2016. Swing the fly ball left field. Deep going back. Cabrera looking up. And it's gone. A home run. James McCann with the walk-off winner. Number three. Rounding third. Exchanges the low 10 with Dave Clark. And into the mob scene at home. And into the mob scene at home we go, taking our listener questions and answering the question, who's the guy the Tigers need in 2016? I'm going to skip right to that question, Rob, because we were just coming off that topic. Jeff Morford at High OPS on Twitter says, should the Tigers pick up Jonathan Papelbon now that he's available? And Yeah. Um, do you think he's going to be with the Nationals next year? Oh, I don't think there's any chance he comes back to Washington next year. I think they're going to do whatever they can to get rid of him. You know, if they have to just outright cut him and eat that $11 million, I think that they're going to do that. Um, you know, between the rift that uh, kind of evolved in the clubhouse uh, after he was acquired, um, you know, the Washington Post also writ- wrote a big uh, big column on that, on how, you know, Papelbon, even just Papelbon's arrival. Um, oh, yeah. You know, with uh, kind of displacing a guy in Drew Storen who was really kind of well-liked throughout that clubhouse, um, caused some issues, and then to see Papelbon you know, do this whole thing. I don't think there's any way that he comes back next year. He insisted on it, right? He came in saying, I'm not going to join the team unless you make me the closer. Yeah. And then they had to guarantee his, uh, I believe it was a vesting option. They had to guarantee that option for next year. So he's, you know, on the hook for $11 million. Uh, but after everything that, you know, that, that has happened there, I think the nationals are going to just have to get rid of him. And, you know, it's tough to see even Drew Storen coming back to that team, uh, next year, so the t- the Nationals may be kind of going through a big time bullpen overhaul, um, but I think that I think they'll definitely get more for Storen than they would for Papelbon at this point, as far as on the trade market. But I don't I don't know if either one of those guys will be back next year. Well, and obviously Jeff, uh, who was joking around, a friend of, a friend of ours, a friend of the Blushy Boys, and a guy that's come out to the Blushy Boys meetups and met him a couple of times, real nice guy. He's obviously joking and suggesting the Tigers should pick up Papelbon, but. Uh, you know, it, like you said, I think it's it's an interesting question to see if anybody will bother picking up Jonathan Papelbon at this point. I mean, I think he's still got he's still got the goods, maybe as a closer, but I think at this point he has just proved to be so toxic for two teams now in a row. I mean, he didn't leave any bridges standing in Philadelphia when he left. Uh, you know, and so now with this going on in Washington, I, I the Tigers are not going to pick him up, right? I don't think there's any way that they do. Um, okay. you know, there's, yeah, they've kind of tended to steer away from a lot of these, you know, guys with character issues in the past. And I know that they've had Delman Young on their team. They've had, you know, Miguel Cabrera has had his issues as well. But I just don't see the Tigers, you know, kind of going out and acquiring a guy with that many red flags, especially with kind of the clubhouse red flags that he provides. Um, you know, they've really kind of praised their clubhouse chemistry, even with a team, you know, not doing so well this year. And I don't see any reason why they would try to mess that up. Yep, you just hope that it's not the case, but you hear little things like Brad Osmus saying he wants uh, or hopes, you know, that he'll be getting a top-flight closer next year, and then you, you got a guy like Papelbon, who is that, he does fit that role, and he will be on the market almost certainly. You just kind of hope that they'll, I, I don't think they will, but it's a, it's a question mark. Um, all right, Hockey Man at Hockey Red and White on Twitter says, Would the Tigers consider different bench, third base, and hitting coaches, or were all retained? 
Well, all of Osmus's coach, uh, all the coaching, all the coaches on Osmus's coaching staff will be back next year. Um, you know, I I think that's the right move. I don't like when teams fire their you know their bench coach or their hitting coach. Um, you know, I think that that's really just kind of a, a scapegoat type situation. And I don't know that any of the guys in Osmus's staff really deserve. You know, I don't think anyone's really done so poorly that you deserve to be fired. Uh, one guy we've seen come up a lot is Jeff Jones, but at the same time, he's a guy that has really kind of worked wonders with a lot of pitchers on the staff pe- previously. You know, you've seen Anibal Sanchez really kind of blossom in a Tigers uniform prior to this year. Uh, Matt Scherzer developed very well. And even guys like Rick Porcello and Drew Smiley did very well uh, with the Tigers. So I, I think that he's kind of earned the benefit of the doubt in staying on staff. Um, you know, some of the other guys, I think the third base coach is like the most thankless job in sports. <laughs> it's a very difficult position to coach. Um, you know, I don't know that, that any of uh, any of the guys, Dave Clark or Gene Lamont or any of the people we've had there, really kind of make a difference. Um, so, you know, I think that that one's just kind of a toss-up. And, you know, I think that, uh, you know, with Gene Lamont on the bench, I think that the, the whole discussion of clubhouse chemistry kind of speaks to him as well. You know, having him there, um, you know, I just don't see any reason why he should be fired. Yeah, I'm not really sure what any of these guys do, and that's the problem. I mean, outside of Joyner is the hitting coach, Dave Clark's the third base coach, uh, Omar Vizquel does some of defensive coaching along with first base, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But we, as we've talked before, it's hard enough to evaluate what a manager is doing and how much he's contributing or detracting from a team. I, I couldn't even begin to tell you how you would begin, how, how to evaluate Jeff Jones's performance. And you talk about guys like Sanchez or Scherzer, guys that are making improvements over the years with Jones as the coach. You know, yet the minute that things go wrong, the minute you have a, a tire fire like the bullpen we had this year, suddenly everyone's like, oh, I got to fire Jeff Jones. What's that bum doing? Like, stop, stop. You have no idea what he does or doesn't do or whether his advice is being accepted or the training is working, you know, because it's the, the raw talent that he's working with. It's just how do you how do you even begin to grade that outside of uh, outside of Dave Clark? You know, with a third base coach, like you said, you can kind of, you know, with someone like Tom Brookins, I, I think he waved guys home way too often you know especially when it was like prince fielder and you just dude don't do that stop don't do that it's a bad idea you only need to see that happen once before you say i'm not going to do that again and tom brookens did it repeatedly and i thought that dave clark has been much more uh conservative in the right ways you know when it comes to deciding whether or not to send runners home i think he's got a pretty good feel for it i certainly have not seen the level of outcry against dave clark as you know as what we had when, when tom brookens was coaching third no, definitely not. Um, you know, and, and with some of these guys, I kind of joke around that, you know, some of the other things they bring to the table, I think are, you know, we can measure those. They're more entertaining. Obviously, they have nothing to do with the, you know, the actual outcome in the game, such as like where Dave Clark stands on the field when he's coaching mm-hmm. third. You know, mm-hmm. he's anywhere but the coaching box, Great. which I find hilarious. You know, half the time he's like in the on deck circle when he's waving guys home. He's, um, he's crouched you know, behind the umpire. We we mentioned and celebrated Omar Vizquel's Instagram account uh, last yes. time, um, and you know that is you know just phenomenal. If you're if you're not following him on there, you need to right now. His fashion uh, game is on point. It's amazing. It's it's a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, as far as what these guys actually do, we have no idea. No, not not only do we not know what they're doing um, outside of the basics, but we don't know how effective it is, and we don't know why it is or is not effective. Like I said, I, I couldn't tell you if if Jeff Jones is succeeding 
or failing, and whether or not that's based on uh, the the pitcher that he's working with, the raw talent available, or whether the guy's just not listening. There's just there's too many variables there. So, I uh, I don't have any problem with the fact that they're keeping the coaching staff. I at least not at that level. I have a problem with it at a different level, but we'll talk about that in the next in the next segment. Uh, Mark Sands at Shark MGS says, if Matt Boyd doesn't make the rotation in 2016, would he be a good fit for the Drew Smiley 2013 role, or better off in AAA? And I assume by the Drew Smiley 2013 role, Mark is referring to what maybe kind of a, a long relief um, type situation. Yeah, um, you know, it's tough to say with a guy like him. You know, Boyd had some pretty good numbers in AAA this year, and I think that he, you know, may kind of be beyond that level at this point. But at the same time, he's had some, you know, had some kind of mechanical issues. He walks a few guys. His command isn't quite what Drew Smiley's was. Um, I remember that in 2013, there was kind of that big, drawn-out rotation battle between Smiley and Rick Porcello. And I think that Porcello won it by, you know, not allowing a run in the spring. Um, but Smiley also kind of proved during that that he just absolutely needed to be in the major leagues. Mm-hmm. And at this point, you know, it's kind of wishy-washy with Matt Boyd, and I think that if they're uncertain about where he belongs, he needs to be in AAA. You know, Smiley was like, this was like a, without a doubt, you need to have Drew Smiley in Detroit pitching in whatever form you can. Um, and I think that part of that is because the Tigers have some other guys that could also fill that same similar type role. You know, have a guy like Kyle Ryan or a Kyle Lobstein who I think could also uh, capably fill that role, whereas Drew Smiley was just so clearly far and away better than anyone else they had in that bullpen then that they needed to bring him up. So unless we see some like big improvements from Matt Boyd next spring, uh, I'd, I'd rather see him start the year in AAA and then kind of go from there. Yeah, it's it's a hard toss-up, I guess. I mean, I agree with what you're saying. You want to have him down at that at that level where he can work on some of the mechanics and get a lot of innings in. At the same time, it's it's also nice, I think, to have the Major League experience and face Major League hitters, but I don't know how much exposure he would get, you know, as a long man in the bullpen, and I, I, I'm sorry, I just don't trust Brad Osmus to know how to use him anyway. Uh, you know, it'd be like Osmus to use Matt Boyd is a, you know, a loogie or some stupid thing. I'd, I'd much rather see him get as many innings as possible at the AAA level and then come up and begin to help the team when he's truly, truly ready for it. Uh, David Tokars, uh, at Tokars on Tigers. Yeah, we're going to talk about David because I think he's uh, he's actually the, the curse behind the 2015 season. He might or, be the curse behind every season. He might be. Uh, hi, Dave. How you doing? Says, uh, of candidates in the system, who do you think is a viable fifth starter candidate for next year? Well, I think we've already touched on one in Matt Boyd. Um, you know, ideally, I think the Tigers would go out and acquire a couple starters and make Daniel Norris the fifth starter next yes. year. But I don't know if that's going to necessarily be the case. Um, you may get another kind of buy-low candidate. Um, you know, names off the top of my head, I guess Matt Latos might be a guy that you could pick up in that role. Um, could be the kind of guy that you look for in that role. Um, but within the system, you know, pretty much everyone that we've already kind of touched on, Kyle Lobstein could be that guy. Kyle Ryan could be that guy. Um, Buck Farmer, who, you know, they pointed out uh, in our kind of bless you boys chat room, um, there is a picture of him holding a rattlesnake. Um, so hopefully he survives that what? whole ordeal. Right. Yeah, you'll, you'll have to take a look at that later. Okay. Um, 
But anyways, Buck Farmer could be that guy. You know, we've seen kind of flashes from all these people throughout the year. So, you know, right now it's a complete guessing game. Um, but, you know, once February and March come around, we may have a better idea of what exactly to expect and who might actually be in this race for the fifth starter role. Yeah, it's it's a big question, Mark. Uh, just knowing what we know right now, I'm going to zero in on that word viable, a viable fifth starter. And at this point, I would say it has to be Daniel Norris. You have to get two other starters to fill that out and make Norris the number five guy. I don't think Boyd is viable as that fifth starter right now. Not not if they're going to be. He was fine for this year. The, the season was tanked anyway. But going into next year, if they really want to do the pedal to the metal thing and be contenders and get to the World Series, I don't think you can go with Boyd as your number five guy. Um, I don't think you can go with Kyle Ryan. You certainly can't go with Buck Farmer at this point because he's going to be dead of rattlesnake bites, apparently. Rest in peace, Buck. Uh, And of all the guys you mentioned, I think uh, Kyle Lobstein's maybe the most viable if you're going to push Norris to number four or whatever. But I think that's a bad, bad choice. I, I would absolutely go get two other starters and then let Daniel Norris be the number five guy. Uh, the the issue with, with Tokars, that as I see it, Tokars started the hashtag no hubris thing a couple years ago. Some of us were getting a little bit too big for our britches and the Tigers were winning and winning and winning and just raking in the division titles. And uh, anytime anybody would say something like overly positive on Twitter, like, yeah, going all the way, this is the year, man, World Series rings and champagne, he would always come back and say, hey, hashtag no hubris. Because he believes that, that, that there are baseball gods. He believes that too much hubris will actually, uh, it's like bad karma. It comes back at you, and then the team loses. And, and lo and behold, 2015, here it is. Here it is. We had too much hubris last year in 2014, and now the team tanks in 2015. I, I think it's his fault. I, I'd be willing to blame him, too. We could, fi- we could fire David Tokars. Okay, let's hire him and then fire him. And then maybe the baseball gods will be appeased with the sacrifice. I think he still has writer privileges. I could fire him from that. Okay. Well, let's look into that and see if we can't get this team back on track as quickly as possible. Detroit Bad Boys at Detroit Bad Boys on Twitter says, What's it worth to get rid of the unwritten rules of baseball? I say 1.5 million fan duel ads. Well, I think that that would only take about a week to happen. So... (laughs) I'd be willing to do that. The real question is what it would be. What would it? What is it worth to get rid of all the FanDuel ads? Adding more unwritten rules. I don't know. 1.5 million ads. Like you said, that's kind of a low number. You get rid of 1.5 million FanDuel ads, and you're talking about maybe an hour's worth on an NFL Sunday. So that's that's actually not that many. Um, I don't know. The unwritten rules are so stupid, though. I really think. There's so many of them, and I always talk about the book that I loved uh, reading a couple years ago. I still recommend it. It's called The Baseball Codes. It talks about all the various unwritten rules, and I, there was some that I didn't even know about. Did you know you're not supposed to steal a base in a, in a blowout? Yeah, they had talked about that one, and I think there's like an actual number to it that's not written down anywhere, which uh, you know is kind of funny. They said you know, something like five runs is okay, but six runs is not, and right. yeah, it's it's just very odd. Yeah, I think Torrey Hunter kind of got in trouble for it. If it wasn't this year, maybe it was last year, but it seems like recently he got in trouble for stealing second base during a six-run blowout, and he was kind of all upset that he got in trouble for it. But yeah, it's a, it's stupid. This, these, the, the way these rules are stacked, and there's there's no real meaning. I was it uh, Grant Brisby uh, has an ongoing series, you know, where he grades various situations as they break or don't break the unwritten rules. It's kind of a funny series, but yeah, I would not be um, I would not be sad to see the unwritten rules just go the way of the dinosaur completely. I think they're stupid. 
I think Grant Brisby could write about getting his shoes polished and it would still be hilarious. I think he probably has and has probably sold all kinds of copies of that book. Go for it, Grant. Just uh, just let me know when the book comes out. So that'll do it for our Into the Mob Scene at Home uh, segment. I want to thank our listeners who have uh, sent in the questions. Please keep those questions coming. Uh, you can find us uh, with, on Twitter at HookslideBYB. Or you can find Rob at BYBRob. You can find us at Bless You Boys on Twitter. Send us an email at BYBTigers at gmail.com. That's how you can get those questions submitted. Uh, it's It's been fun having that uh, be a regular part of our, our show thus far and really enjoying the wide variety of questions so far. So we'll wrap this up when we come back. Our final segment, the seventh inning Kvetch, and we'll talk about why the Tigers are already behind the eight ball for 2016. 3-0, here's the 2-2. Oh, boy. Curveball grabbed the outside corner. Victor, not happy. Pitch that he felt went around the plate. You rarely see Victor complain. Brad Osmus better get out there quickly. Oh, and Victor got tossed. And we're back from the break and into the seventh inning Kvetch. It's that portion of the show where we just kind of talk whatever we want to talk about. And this is going to become a very interesting segment, I think, in the offseason, Rob, because we're going to have a, maybe a string of some special guests to get in here and maybe take on some topics that we typically wouldn't take on during the regular season. We'll uh, give that some thought here. But for right now, we're going to answer the question uh, or talk about the fact that the Tigers are already behind the eight ball in 2016, at least as far as I see it. And here's why. It all comes down to what just happened with Brad Osmus, and not as as such, not because they brought Osmus back. It's really the fact that that seems to be the uh, kind of the final piece of the puzzle, I guess. When this all started back after the trade deadline and Mike Illich deciding to fire Dave Dombrowski from his position, at the time, uh, Illich said, "We, we want to go in a new direction. And that was the reason given for letting Dombrowski go and bringing Al Avila in as the general manager. But it seems now, Rob, that at that point in time, we were kind of looking into the future and saying, what other wide sweeping changes are coming then? Because he said, we want to go in a new direction. And now we kind of see the pictures kind of forming. And uh, it's really looking like um, <laughs> Dave Dombrowski is the only change at this point. And it just, it, it kind of raises for me this question of how can you go in a new direction when you really didn't move any of the pieces. You only took out the guy at the top, arguably the one guy that shouldn't have been taken out of the picture, the one that was most equipped and successful in his job at that at that point in time. You kept all the same front office guys, all of the lieutenants that worked with Dombrowski, even Al Avila, you know. It's, it's, it's confusing to me, Rob. People say, you know, um, on the one hand, it's okay to have Al Avila in that spot even though he's never been a general manager before because... Hey, he's worked with Dombrowski, you know, right-hand guy for how many decades? Uh, Avila himself said all the major trades that Dave made, I was right there with him. I was working with him on this stuff. So if that's true, and that's a reason to think that uh, Avila is going to be fine as a rookie GM, on the flip side of that coin, if Dave Dombrowski was the problem and the trades he was making was the problem, well, then Al Avila is right there with him, the guy who was, you know, advising him on all these trades so it just it seems to me nothing's changed they took out one guy at the top uh this this whole uh reboot procedure control of detroit really turned into just uh defragmenting and, and get, getting rid of the dd drive so how do you do this rob how do you how do you go in a new, new direction when nothing really changed 
See, I think this kind of speaks to what we had talked about earlier with not wanting Mike Illich making all the baseball decisions in the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can kind of speculate as to why exactly Dombrowski was fired, but I think that this, I, I think that, you know, he may have said, you know, we're going in a new direction, this type of thing, but, you know, maybe maybe there's not a new direction. You know, maybe he thought that this was going to kind of happen, but, you know, with Al Avila kind of flexing his muscles, so to speak, in the whole Osmus versus Gardenhire showdown or whatever, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, we may not be seeing a huge change in direction. Um, and then that's not necessarily a bad thing. This team's coming off of four consecutive division titles. They've gone to the World Series twice in the last decade. There's not, you don't need to make major changes to everything. I think that Avila has, you know, made a couple of solid moves so far. Um, you know, not necessarily with Osmus or anything like that, but with hiring a few more statistical coordinators or whatever these guys are working under Sam Menzen, I think that's a step in the right direction to bring a bit more statistical analysis to the club. Um, and he's also beefed up the uh, the major league scouting. I think his major league scouting department, not amateur scouting, in hiring a couple more guys there. Um, so you know maybe he's trying to build from within. Maybe he's trying to get more eyes out there for trades, things like that. Um, so you know I like that the the things he's done behind the scenes so far. You know it's tough to judge him based on just what he's done publicly. Um, the you know the awesome thing is really kind of the only other one. Uh, the only move, the only other one that we have any data on to speak of is Randy Wolf acquiring him. And I think that was, you know, just to eat innings towards the end of the season, something he did capably. Um, so, you know, it's definitely very early to judge Avila, which is ironic given that we just posted a poll on the site today asking people what they thought of Avila. That's right. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but I'm not necessarily concerned about whether or not the Tigers are heading in the right direction or in our new direction yet. Um, you know, I think that there are, you need to be, I guess, cautiously optimistic or maybe a bit wary of what exactly Aviva's going to do as a team's general manager. But I think that the, I, I almost want to chalk the whole firing of Dubrowski up to just Illich kind of being impatient with everything and wanting his championship now and not later and being frustrated that Dave Dubrowski didn't give that to him. I guess that's what's so concerning to me, though, is because it does feel very much like that kind of a move. It was an impatience move. It was, hey, you've been here for 13, 14 years, never got it done, so out you go. But to solve that, you bring in Dombrowski's right-hand man, and then you leave all of the other players in place. They just sort of move up the ladder. I would have felt a lot better about letting Dombrowski go. I didn't like that move. I mean, that's that's Trader Dave, the guy who fleeces other teams regularly, the guy that brought us Miguel Cabrera and Max Scherzer and Anibal Sanchez and all these other guys. He's the one guy you don't want to let go if you're going to choose one piece of the puzzle to get rid of. I, Dave would have been the last guy. I would have been so much uh, more, I guess, at ease with it if they had kind of made more of a, a sweeping change and, you know, Osmus and his coaches are gone too. We're serious about kind of starting over, rebooting, you know, going to go that direction but that doesn't seem to be the course i mean everybody else literally everybody else has stayed except for a couple of minor league coaches that have been you know let go and i know we're not there yet where we haven't reached the um you know the the beginning of the off season there may be more changes coming i'm still holding out irrational hope that the whole announcement about osmus was just kind of a I don't know what you call it, a distraction move just for a little. I'm still hoping to come back in November and say, actually, we're going to let him go. I know it's it's not going to happen. I'm, I'm in that bargaining mode of the stages of grief. But um, 
Yeah, getting back to that whole issue, though, you talked about we put this poll out on, on the site, which I thought was funny, uh, with so little data to go on, and we put this poll, do you approve of the job Alavila is doing? Some surprising results. I mean, for as little as we know about the guy at this point, as you mentioned, he's only made like two or three moves, and yet the poll is split. 56% said yes, they approve. 44%. That's a really kind of a, a narrow race at this point for not knowing jack squat about what the guy is going to do did you happen to um did you happen to read the facebook comment no i did not but based on your comment on them earlier i bet they are phenomenal they are absolutely phenomenal and it's you can always tell the people that haven't actually read the article before they've made the comment and just one after the other f for the sole reason of not firing ass wipe good call guy good good call uh, I love this one too. This guy says, uh, "Terrible. He will get worse. It will get worse when he gives his son a huge deal. That's what's coming next." <laughs> and trailing on that, uh, bringing back Osmus and the whole—sorry, bringing back Ass Munch and the whole coaching staff—is just lazy. When he signs Alex, that will be just dumb nepotism. People really seem to be worried that Alex Avila is coming back. Do you think there's any chance of that? See, and I think there's almost no chance of that. You know, Al Avila, we've talked about this before, Al Avila seems, you know, almost uncomfortable at the idea of his son playing for him and kind of having to negotiate a contract with his son and his son's agent. Um, so I think that there's, you know, almost no chance that he comes back. I think the Tigers, you know, kind of to go off on a tangent here, I think the Tigers are going to, they seem comfortable with the idea of Brian Holiday being the backup catcher next year. Mm-hmm. And I think that... If they allocate that money elsewhere, you know, such as the bullpen, instead of going out and spending four, five, six million on a backup catcher, I think you can live with that. But um, you know, I don't, I don't see there's there of being much, a, you know, really any chance that uh, Alex Avila is back in 2016. Yeah, I would tend to agree. Uh, but then again, I really, really thought Brad Osmus was, you know, had zero chance. I said that. I said zero chance. I said the only way he comes back is if if uh, Mike Illich dies. And so when the news came out that Osmus was coming back, my first response on Twitter was, man, that's a really weird way to announce the death of Mike Illich. You know, rest in peace. Apparently everyone's still alive, and it's it's happened. So crazier things are happening. I'm not going to make any more predictions about who is or is not coming back in 2016. Um, but yeah, so it's just going to be interesting to see. Uh, they said they were going a new direction. It sounds like not really. Uh, we just wanted to get rid of Dave Dombrowski. Uh, okay, interesting choice. Interesting. I'm not saying Al Avila can't do the job. I, I, Given the very little bit of data that we have, I'm not going to even vote in the poll because I don't know. I, I have nothing to go on other than the fact that he kept Brad Osmus. But like you said, there could be a huge plus to that in just in terms of if that's Al Avila flexing his independent muscles to say, you know, I'm going to make the decisions here. That could be a very, very good sign. So um, we'll see. Um Maybe they are, maybe they aren't behind the eight ball. It's all going to really come down to the moves that they make in this offseason, and I cannot wait to see how that starts going down. And we're only, what, three weeks away from that happening. So anyhow, that should just about wrap things up for this episode of the Voice of the Turtle podcast. Rob, do you have any final words? Yes, uh, I want to thank everyone who has listened to the podcast and read the site this year and offered us comments and feedback. Uh, you know, we do all of this for you, and we're you know just overwhelmed with the support that we've gotten. You know, not only in the last few days, but all season long, uh, we were you know very happy to record this podcast and do all this 
all this stuff and cover this team. Uh, and we're really happy when, uh, when, you know, people, you know, even just stop in to say, you know, thank you for what you do, that type of thing. Um, you know, if you, anyone has any feedback on, you know, things that we can do better on the podcast or on the site or thing, things they want to see throughout the off season, please let us know. Uh, hit us up, you know, in Facebook, email, Twitter, however you want to get a hold of us, uh, and just let us know your thoughts. But thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Yeah, I would I would echo that. Absolutely. It's uh as I've said before, we we do this for the audience and it's really nice to see the interaction from the audience because then we know people are listening and if people are not listening then this is just kind of a really sad conversation that you and I are having every week. And not that I don't enjoy talking to you, but uh I you know, we could be watching a baseball game right now and we're we're not. So well, I'm kind of uh, watching. You're not. I know. You're totally distracted watching that, that game, and I, I need to get to my TV so I can see how it ends. Uh, but yeah, to follow up on what Rob just said, we, uh, we are only half the conversation here. You are the other half. So go ahead and leave your comments on the, uh, on the website, on the post where this podcast is embedded, especially when it comes to the question of how do you want to see us fill up the offseason uh, with this podcast with uh, very little uh, or limited Tigers content to go on. Well, we've got some ideas, but uh, certainly want to hear what you have to say, too. You can hit me up on Twitter at HookslideBYB. You can find Rob at BYBRob, or just send us that email at BYBTigers at gmail.com. So, on behalf of Rob Rojacki and Rob Rojacki's magnificent beard, this is Hookslide saying, it's okay to strangle people, just make sure you do it out of the view of the cameras. And we'll see you next time on The Voice of the Turtle.